Good morning, church. Um, if we have not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Nicole, and I'm currently the spiritual formation pastor here at Restore. Uh, however, it was announced a couple weeks ago, I will soon be, uh, come July, transitioning out of my pastoral role here at Restore and be transitioning toward the process of church planting. And so uh, as I kind of prepped this week, knowing I'd be preaching this Sunday as well as next Sunday, as I kind of thought over um, what's been bringing me encouragement, what's been bringing me hope in this season, especially a, a very scary season of transition, uh, one book in particular has really been constantly coming to mind and, and to, to my heart. And if you're familiar with this book, this will come as no surprise, uh, but that book uh, is the book of Acts. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that book, what this book of the Bible is, is essentially a narrative, um, a, a retelling of the experiences, or the acts, if you will, of early Christianity's first ever church planters. And so me being a church planter myself very early on in this season, I am definitely in what is probably an annoying phase of being just like really obsessed with the early church. And that's like all I want to talk about, all I want to think about, like, man, let's get back to the early church, right? Like, let's just do what they did. Let's get back to being devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Like, let's be this community that's willing to gather and sell all of our belongings so that nobody has need. Uh, and so the book of Acts certainly gives a church planner like me some hope and encouragement and a picture of what the church can look like, of what the church can be. Um, but what I also love about the book of Acts is that it does not just give us this idealistic picture or version of what is possible for the church, of what the church can be. It also gives a very realistic picture. It gives a lot of nitty-gritty details and, and does not shy away from covering the complexity and the chaos and the messiness that was starting the early church. I mean, even a few verses on from the ones that I just summarized about selling all of our belongings and the breaking of bread and of prayer, a man and his wife straight up drop dead after stealing money from the church. <laughs> I've been in a lot of trainings and meetings recently, and let me tell you, that is not something they train you for. That is the reality that we see even in Acts. We see that it is not just this idealistic blueprint, but is also a sobering reminder of just how human the church really is. And church planter or not, I think what the book of Acts does for us is it reveals the wonderful beauty as well as the audacious reality that is God's plan to build his kingdom, to set forward his word and his good news through the likes of really messy, really complicated, totally average, yet spirit-filled men and women who have simply had this encounter with a man named Jesus and now long to share him with the world. So this week and next week, we're going to be looking at some stories, some acts of one of these men and one of these women. And we're going to see what their stories have to tell us about what it means to be disciples, what it means to be part of the church, what it means for God to work in and among our human complexity and messiness. This week we'll be looking at the story of Stephen, and next week we'll be looking at the story of Lydia. My hope is that in venturing through their stories, we will uncover what it is like for even us today to be messy and complicated 
totally average, yet spirit-filled men and women who have had our own encounter with this man named Jesus and now long to share him with the world. My prayer is that what we will find will be both wonderfully idealistic as well as soberingly human. So let's start with a word of prayer, church, and then we'll dive into Stephen's story. Heavenly Father, we come before you just acknowledging our need for you this morning, Lord, our need for your presence, our, our need for your just ability to open our hearts, to open our ears, to have us see things and hear things in a new way. Would you do that for us this morning, Lord? Would you just excite our souls? Would you awaken our souls for what is, is possible by your spirit, God? And we see that through uh, the stories of, of your past saints, God. We pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the story of Stephen begins for us in Acts chapter 6, and it actually continues through Acts chapter 7, even early on into chapter 8. We're not going to cover all that ground this morning. We're actually going to be spending most of our time in the very early stages of Stephen's story that we find in Acts chapter 6. But to begin our time, I'm going to go ahead and read through the first 15 verses of Stephen's story that we find uh, within Acts chapter 6. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. Feel free to follow along the screen behind me. Acts 6 verse 1 begins, In those days... As the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, if we were to continue on in Stephen's story and enter into Acts chapter 6, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, we see that Stephen sort of launches into this pretty epic, pretty infamous speech. The speech that essentially summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament. 
It summarizes the entirety of Israel's story and their history, and it all kind of culminates and results in what, if you ask me, is probably the most epic burn we see in scripture. What Stephen does through this speech is essentially use the people's own history against them and reveals and shows them how from the time of Abraham through each of their patriarchs, Moses and Joseph and David and Solomon, time and time again, there's this pattern. The people of Israel are shown the truth of God and they reject it. And they reject the person or the prophet who bore it, often persecuting and even killing them ultimately refusing and rejecting the word and the works of their God. And what he's showing them is that this recent and current rejection of Jesus, this is just the next in a long line of betrayals and murders that have stained Israel's history. He reveals to them this pattern of refusing and rejecting the work of God and of his spirit. And while the speech is both epic and infamous, it does lead to the stoning of Stephen. He will then go down in history as early Christianity's first known martyr. So obviously, with the story of Stephen, what we typically center around is this glorious speech and his impactful parting from earth that follows. In the retelling of the story of Stephen, we typically begin maybe toward the end of Acts 6 when tensions are beginning to rise, but we certainly center around the speech that he delivers and his death that follows. But this morning, what I want us to do is rewind all the way, all the way back to the very beginning of his story, all the way back to where the, the author of Acts, Luke, where he chooses to begin Stephen's story, because I think it's important. I think to understand the significance and the power of the words that Stephen delivers, you have to understand who Stephen was before his speech, before his death, before the rising tension or the signs and wonders that get him into trouble in the first place. So this morning, we're going to begin uh, Stephen's story where Luke chooses to begin it in the midst of a very exciting, totally enticing, sure to get its own Netflix miniseries, Bureaucratic Oversight. Acts chapter 6 begins with a complaint from the Hellenistic Jews toward the Hebraic Jews. So the Hellenistic Jews, these are Jewish people that speak Greek. They are highly influenced um, and marked by Greek society. And they raise a complaint against the Hebraic Jews. These are Jews that speak Hebrew. They are highly influenced by ancient uh, Israel's culture as they have never left their native homeland. And so what we see happening here in the beginning of Acts 6 is as the church begins to grow, as they begin to increase in number, what also begins to increase is the type of people that are present. What increases is the cultures that are represented, the languages being spoken, the traditions and customs and perspectives that these people come from. And so inevitably, as the church begins to grow, so does the inevitability of conflict, of disagreement, 
of no longer being on the same page. Troy and I were uh, at a retreat a couple weeks ago, and I loved what one of the speakers there had to say about relationships and conflict. She said, a relationship prior to conflict is simply agreement. And here's something we need to understand this morning, church. Agreement is not the same as unity. And I actually don't think unity is truly possible, is truly a goal we can pursue unless we can have healthy, keyword, healthy and safe disagreement. What the speaker at this retreat was getting at, what I'm continuing to try and get at as I repeat her words and add to them, is that in a relationship, when conflict presents itself, what is really being presented is an invitation. It is an invitation into an even deeper relationship. It is an invitation into deeper connection, deeper understanding of one another, deeper security with one another. Right, internally we know this, a healthy relationship is not one that never has conflict. Rather, it is one that can withstand conflict. It is one that does not need to avoid it, but can actually endure it, walk through it, see its way to the other side, still together, maybe even stronger than before. That is a healthy relationship. That church is a picture of unity. I think that is exactly what we see here happening early on in Acts chapter 6. We see not only the inevitability that is conflict in any growing relationship, but I think we also see an example of what it looks like to handle that conflict in a healthy way that seeks to walk through that conflict and end up on the other side more secure, even stronger than before. The Hellenists, they raise this complaint that their widows are being overlooked in this daily distribution of goods. What they're essentially saying, what we're seeing here, is the early church's first ever claim of bias. It's a good thing we'll never have to worry about that again. We fix it here, never to be worried about. But what's important about this complaint, we see no signs that they think this is intentional. This is not a claim that the Hebraic Jews are, are trying to cause them harm or trying to cause them pain. No, it's an oversight. It's something being overlooked. It's something being missed. And so they bring it forward to their community, and the way that the apostles respond is significant. We see no sign of defense. We see no sign of challenge. We see no signs of them trying to dismiss or belittle or ignore their complaint. No, rather, in the most ordinary, undramatic, mundane of ways, they simply gather the community together and say, let's fix this problem. I think what we see the Holy Spirit doing here is work through very ordinary efforts such as critique and feedback. 
we see that this community will be served and strengthened through the everyday reality that is community conflict. I think we see a security and a peace that is possible, church, when we recognize that conflict is an inevitability. It is not a failure. It's not a critique of somebody's character. It should not be a declaration of somebody's worthiness or goodness. It's a reality of a grouping of people seeking after unity. And it's how the Holy Spirit chooses to work even among and within the messiness and complexity that is our humanity. And we will see that as we move forward in the story. Like I said, the apostles, they gather everyone together, and they tell them in verse 2, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. So you all, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation who we can appoint to this duty. Now, I just want to acknowledge, if you, like me, have maybe had less than stellar previous experiences with pastors or church leadership, it is really easy to read into this verse maybe some dismissiveness, maybe even some arrogance. I think it's easy to read into this verse, we've got more important things to do. We're busy doing the real work of ministry. We can't be bothered to serve your precious tables. That's somebody else's job. Because I think the reality is some of us have seen this before. We've seen pastors or church leadership in, in word or in deed reveal this belief that this up here, what I'm doing, this is the real work of ministry. And to call me away from this to, I don't know, meet a physical or tangible need in the community, that's a distraction. That's somebody else's job, not to be put on my plate. And so if that is in any way an inkling of what you get from this verse, I just want to acknowledge, I see you, I'm with you, and we should grab coffee later because I have a whole lot more to say on that. But I also want to acknowledge this morning, I think for us to really understand what the apostles are doing here, what they're expressing here, it is most helpful not necessarily to look on our own current experiences, which are shaded and colored with a very Western, a very evangelical idea of church and pastors and leadership. Rather, what is more helpful is to look back, maybe throughout scripture, and look, is there a time or a place where something similar is happening that is maybe being handled in a similar way that maybe even uses similar language? And lucky for us, there is. All the way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus 18, we read of this event with Moses. Moses has just uh, seen his way out of, of Egypt, bringing his people, the people of Israel, into the wilderness, and he finds himself in a very similar situation as to what the apostles are dealing with here. He, like the apostles, are trying to build and form this God-honoring and faithful community, and that community just keeps running into conflict and disagreement and strife, and so it is in the middle of Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to pay him a visit. And these are the events that follow. We find uh, these events in Exodus 
like I said, 18, verses 13 through 18. It says, The next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge, while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you are doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, because the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Church, I think if we can see what the apostles are saying and doing here, not as some sort of distancing of themselves from the mundane or difficult task of serving tables and serving the marginalized, but rather a moment of genuine humility where they are really for the first time acknowledging we cannot lead this community alone. The burden is becoming too heavy. We cannot continue to seek to meet every need by ourselves. We cannot continue to try and be everything to everybody. It is not good. It is not right. We need help. And so they ask for it. And we see the community rise and respond. And I think what we're seeing here is the power of the Spirit to work through the very ordinary, very mundane reality that is needing and asking for help. The ordinary effort that is simply sharing each other's burdens. This is how the Spirit of God is moving and forming and shaping this community of people. And we see it just a few verses later in verse 7. The result of this raising of complaint and, and meeting that complaint and seeking to meet that need, the, the result of this recognition of a need for help and receiving that help, this, this result of shared burdens. The word of God is spread. Disciples in Jerusalem increase greatly. There are large groups becoming more obedient to the faith. This community is strengthened and served by a bureaucratic oversight. <laughs> they become more unified, ready to do the work of ministry together through the simple calling up forward of seven men to serve tables. This is the power of our God <laughs> in the most human and ordinary of circumstances. And it is in this resolving of conflict, in this receiving of help, that, of course, we meet our main character, Stephen. Stephen is chosen to be one of these seven men who will serve these tables, and he is chosen specifically based on two qualifications. To be full of wisdom and to be full of the Spirit. Now, I highlight these qualifications because Luke highlights them. 
and the way that he highlights them is quite interesting. He actually repeats them. Just a few verses down in Stephen's story, as tensions begin to rise within the synagogue, as the elders and the crowds begin to argue with him, here we see in verse 10, they begin to argue, but they were unable to stand up against his what? Wisdom and the power of the spirit he is speaking through. The repetition of these specific qualifications, I believe is intentional by Luke. What he is doing here is he is joining together, he is connecting what could easily be seen as two completely separate seasons of ministry for Stephen. He is drawing this link for us. What he is doing at the beginning of this chapter, serving the marginalized, centering the vulnerable in his ministry and his life, this is directly tied to what will later be a bold and declarative standing of faith, where he will endure intense persecution, even death. It is the same wisdom, it is the same spirit that is working and is moving, and they cannot be separated. Troy and I were um, in a meeting not too long ago with a church planning network called Mission Alive. They're a really cool network that they are uh, specifically committed and devoted to planting churches and working with church planners uh, who want to plant within marginalized and vulnerable communities, specifically for those marginalized and vulnerable communities. And so as we were in this meeting and they were kind of asking me about my story and my vision and my thoughts on church, these meetings are really annoying because it's always like, are we just having a conversation or is this an interview? It's most likely always an interview, but they like to be chill about it. And so they're asking me about all these things. I'm beginning to share with them. And it's really great when you're in these meetings and you just feel like wholly unqualified because you get really honest and you just kind of like let it all hang out. You're like, I don't even know how I'm in this room right now. So like, here's everything. Uh, and so I'm telling them everything and I tell them, you know, the reason we're even having this conversation right now, the reason I've specifically wanted to have this meeting with Mission Alive and a church planning network like this, the reason why I have a heart and care so deeply about the church's involvement with marginalized and vulnerable communities is not because that has always come natural to me. It is not because I have always been this person with some deep-seated empathy toward the suffering of others. I wish that were true, because that sounds really nice. <laughs> That's not my story. That's not how I got here. Rather, my story is I've worked for the last eight years being devoted to and feeling called to and, and giving all of my time and energy and effort toward church people. That's my sweet spot. That's what I love. That's what I, I feel good at is the equipping and forming and shaping and building up of the people showing up on Sundays, of the people committed to Jesus and, and, and wanting to learn more about the Bible and God and how do we be faithful believers? How do we walk with God? That's what I've loved. That's what I've served. And in those eight years of loving and serving church people, one thing has become so increasingly obvious. I cannot possibly love or serve church people without at the same time 
drawing them and urging them and maybe even slightly pushing them toward the margins. There simply is no equipping the saints without encouraging and ensuring those saints are being the hands and feet of Jesus in and among environments and people who need his restorative grace and power the most. I have seen and I have experienced Bible studies can only take us so far. Prayer meetings can only take us so far. Sunday mornings can only take us so far. These things are good and beautiful and powerful, but they only take us so far. There is something that happens when we become doers of the word and not just hearers. When we enter together into the trenches, when we become the, the incarnated presence, the hands and feet of Jesus and his kingdom and his power, that is where our faith becomes real. That is where our faith is challenged. That is where our faith is strengthened. And we see that in the story of Stephen. We see that the centering and care of the marginalized and the vulnerable it is what strengthens, it is what builds, it is what inevitably connects to this bold, cannot be swayed type of faith. These things cannot be divorced, they cannot happen one without the other. And they both hand in hand are what lead to what we see in the final moments of Stephen's life. At the very end of Act 7, Verses 59 through 60, we read Stephen's final words. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. If these final words sound a little familiar, they should. They are nearly identical to Jesus' final words on the cross. Here we see in Stephen's final moments a near perfect display of the likeness of Christ. He in his final moments is fully and gloriously bearing his image. This is the power of the spirit. This is the result of his sanctifying of our souls through the messiness, through the complexity, through the humanness of it all, through the seeking our, the vulnerable and marginalized in our lives by our intentionally going out into the margins, through the building and strengthening of our faith, this is what it results in. Bearing the image of Jesus fully and completely, this is what we're after. And I love that we see in the story of Stephen just how that happens. I don't know if y'all knew this. I certainly didn't before studying his story. But where we get the word martyr, the Greek word we gain that from, it simply means to be a witness. Specifically, it is to be a witness through one's life and one's actions. And Stephen is certainly that, not just at the end of the story. 
even at the very beginning. We witness through this man's life and actions how he serves this community he belongs to. The power and moving of the Spirit of God through mundane things like critique and feedback, through everyday complexities like community conflict, through ordinary measures like receiving and asking for help, sharing each other's burdens, by centering our lives around the overlooked and the oppressed. We bear witness this is how Christ-likeness is formed. This is how the Spirit of God is moving in and among us, church. So will we learn from Stephen's story? Will we bear witness in Stephen's story? The faithfulness of the ordinary. The power of the Spirit to do miraculous, amazing things in even the most mundane of tasks. Would we be willing to follow our Jesus to the margins with all the messiness and complexity that comes with that? Trusting to do so will result in the perfect and holy bearing of his image. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, this Pentecost Sunday, um, I was so annoyed, God, to, to not even realize that till midway through the week, that I had already committed to, to studying and, and preaching through Stephen's story, Lord, but now that we have, and now that we sit in it, and now that we're about to go throughout our weeks ruminating on it, what a gift, Lord, to see your spirit, not just through holy tongues of fire and miraculous prophecy, God, but also through the ordinary and mundane means of somebody's life this man's lived experience that might have ended with a bang, but oh my goodness, did it begin and did it exist in everyday ordinary tasks, tasks we often overlook, realities we often avoid, deeds we often feel are too beyond us, too difficult for us, Lord. What a joy it is, what a humble honor it is to bear witness through this man's life, God, the power of your spirit to work in all of these things. Will we continue to feel that power? Will we continue to long for it throughout this week, Lord, as we go out and continue to live our messy, complex, very human lives? Lord, would you be present through every moment of it? We pray all these things in the sweet name of Jesus Christ. Amen.